Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Holy moly, Dina. Oof. We got a podcast today, friends. We got a podcast for you. All right, so if you have a Netflix, there's this documentary that became the most watched documentary on Netflix, and it's called Seaspiracy. Seaspiracy. And we were able to sit down for a live podcast as part of Planted Expo at Nightshade, incredible restaurant with incredible company, incredible food. Incredible creme brulee, as we've mentioned last <laughs> week. <laughs> with the one and only, the creator, the director... Ellie Tabritzi yes. of Seaspiracy. Amazing. What Holy a, smokes. What a great conversation. What an incredible evening. Um, just want to say thank you to the Planted uh, team as well for just uh, um, including us and ha- having us be a part of that whole weekend, but especially that special event at Nightshade. And also a huge thank you to everyone who came out. And um, it was a ticketed event, so got a ticket and uh, had an amazing, amazing dinner. Um, and then... Throughout the throughout the course of the meal, paused and engaged in this other kind of food for thought, which is this conversation that we're going to share with you, that we got to have with with Ali and talking about the importance of understanding how powerful and uh, impactful the the oceans are not only to our own health as individuals, but to the health of our planet. Of course, all of the beings that uh, the individuals that inhabit the sea and how we have been exploiting them as resources and polluting their habitat. Uh, I mean, this we just cover cover a lot of the bases in terms of, you know, what the documentary talks about and beyond. It's always just a great combo. Yeah, Ellie is an incredible, fascinating, compassionate person. We, we had the pleasure of sharing dinner with him and we got to hear about some of the projects that he's working on now and just kind of, sharing conversation about some of the you know current affairs here in canada his his compassion and empathy was on another level yeah and his curiosity like the way we'd bring things up and he would just like full-heartedly show so much empathetic em- empathetic consideration and mm-hmm. compassion to to issues that he's just hearing about for the first time yeah you can you can tell his heart is in the right place he's one of these people that is here to change the world and we're so lucky to get to share a path and conversation with him but truthfully just to to have him 
having a human experience in this lifetime. Like this man is here to change the world and make it a better place. And he's so committed and the work he's doing is unbelievable. Like if you have not seen Seaspiracy, make sure it's the next thing you watch on Netflix. Yeah. It will change how you see the world. It will change how you see the ocean. It will change how you see, you know, the, the individuals, the 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 sea life that live in the ocean, the fish, the whales, the dolphins, the sharks, and all of the other, you know, living sentient creatures. Um, and the facts, like, it's just like amazing. The, the amount of, of greenwashing and, and just kind of how much truth is hidden from us to allow us to live, you know, in peaceful ignorance and, and comfortable ignorance and, we can make big changes with small decisions. And I think a lot of that is a- amplified and amplified in this conversation. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And as you said, like his, his talent uh, as a filmmaker is evident. The stories that he captures and shares uh, are so important and so powerful and um, compelling. Like, <laughs> yeah, I remember watching it uh, during kind of the pandemic lockdown and it was just it felt like every other post I saw on Instagram was someone sharing about it because in many ways it's overlooked this conversation around the oceans and, and, um, Ali is someone who saw the need to tell the story and did it and, um, did so in, in an extremely compelling, creative and beautiful way in creating this film that kind of pulls back a lot of what's, like I said, kind of overlooked in terms of like the plant-based movement and helping to heal ourselves, our relationship to the planet, and of course, our relationship to independency upon the oceans. So as people, you know, here in Vancouver who are coastal people, like it's really important for us and it kind of resonates. But as Ali even talks about, like you don't have to be living on a coastline to be impacted by the detrimental uh, effects of what we're doing to the oceans. And so, yeah, wherever you are, this um, this message that he's he's sharing is an important one for uh, for us all to listen to and contemplate. Yeah. So again, big thanks to the Planted Expo team, Stephen and Lindsay and everybody involved with with Planted, and and big thanks to to Nightshade for hosting. Uh, this was a live conversation, so it was in front of an audience. So mm-hmm. the audio might be a, you know a little different from our, our usual audio. Um, yeah. There was a little bit of participation at the end. Um, and yeah, just big gratitude to, to Ali Tabritzi for all of the work he's doing. Yeah. All right. Let's let it roll. Here we go. Just making sure everything's recording here. Yeah, yeah. Usually usually the pod is in a very quiet room and there's lots of control. And so tonight is a little bit different. Uh, live podcast. We're very excited to be here at Nightshade with all of you as part of the Planted Expo. So thank you all for being here. And of course, with our, our guest, Ali Tabrizi, many of you already know and have heard from him today, so thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good It's good to be together. It's good to be in this place and have the uh, ability to have these great conversations um, as we have dinner. And so, of course, just the, the awkwardness will get out of the way. You are still going to get food. So please, <laughs> please continue to enjoy and listen, right? Uh, many of us, if you're podcast listeners, you know that happens doing the dishes on a run, on a commute. Uh, during any number of things so that is the reality that we're creating here so you know telling your table mates how delicious the meal is is totally okay it doesn't have to be like total silence the whole time but we just want to create an atmosphere where we're enjoying amazing vegan plant-based food hearing about you know uh, some of the importance 
behind this type of eating and lifestyle. So, but be sure to enjoy. All right, let's give a warm up, warm up, warm, warm welcome for uh, Ellie before we uh, get started here. Just uh, <laughs> a warm welcome. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We thought we should have brought our acoustic guitars and done a little kumbaya, but so. uh, <laughs> instead you guys can, we'll have a little bit of a group conversation uh, with ourselves and with all of you. And uh, maybe we'll see how it goes. Maybe some kumbaya will come out. Uh, I hope so. Mid midway That's through the conversation. We'll, yeah. we'll break into song and dance. Yeah. Um, all right, I thought um, we've got so many things we, we want to talk about. And I just want to first give, give thanks to you. Um, your documentary, Seaspiracy, is incredible. Uh, it's, it's one of the best documentaries that I've seen, one of the top docs on Netflix. Um, I think often the oceans get neglected in the conversation, and, and you brought that to the forefront in such an uh, intentional, beautiful way. Um, I find personally in a lot of conversations, you know, my family knows, my friends know, they all know that I'm part of the plant-based community, and, and that's something that's important to myself, and they'll often go, oh, I've... I've you know, I've, I've cut out meat, I'm eating less meat, but, uh, but seafood, but fish, you know. And that seems like a common thing. Like a lot of people forget that fish too are individuals, that they're sentient, sentient beings, that they're animals of the ocean. Um, and there's just like this acceptance. I might, not, I might not eat animals, land animals anymore, but I'm okay. They haven't made that same connection with the animals of the sea. So, um, your film does a great job on kind of connecting that, and I just wanted to, to give thanks. Thank you, I appreciate you appreciating it. Um, it was certainly challenging to create a film that would enable people to actually get interested in the lives of marine life. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so shocked by the response is I really thought no one would watch the film. Like I was just making the film because it was a film that I wanted to see, see someone else make, but no one else had made it. And so I went on this journey to, to, to make the documentary. We didn't know it was going to end up on Netflix. Um, and I thought, well, when it did get um, taken on by Netflix, that it'd just get buried and no one would watch it because it's a film about fish. It's a film about the ocean. It's a film about the fishing industry. And, um, and so even still, I'm still kind of in shock and processing like what the secret magic source is in the film that has somehow been able to spark it. Um, but regardless, I'm, I'm excited by all the change that has, has come about from the film. Amazing. Um, we we want to get into some of the, the stats and, and the kind of the striking information that kind of takes you, takes you back. But I know you spent a while on the film. You started uh, when you were 22 um, film, filming this and putting it together. And I believe it came out when you were 27, yeah. some, something around there. Yeah. So I was curious, what, what over that course of five years, what, what did the ocean teach you about, about us humans, about humanity? Oh, boy. I think I started to really comprehend just how vast the impact has been on the seas and that this is actually a problem that isn't just a, you know, a, a problem that's occurred over the last 10 years or 20 years or even 50 years. The impact on the seas have been going on for hundreds of years, pretty much since like the steam-powered engine um, when it came to exploiting the ocean in, in that kind of mass industrialized way. And the term like overfishing was even used in like the 1700s, there were problems with that. Um, but what we've seen now is, is like hundreds of years of buildup of human impact on the seas, predominantly from the fishing industry. And you know, I started up my journey of just being fascinated by the beauty that's in the ocean and the wildlife that's there. And the, the journey was actually quite bittersweet because 
I was spending more and more time out in the ocean. I was, I was seeing these dolphins leaping out of the ocean, these flying fish, these manta rays. It was just incredible. But at the same time, I was being confronted by learning more and more about the single industry that's wiping them all out faster than I could even appreciate that they existed. Um, so it just taught me that actually, when a lot of people try to get involved with environmental work, there's often this sentiment that one person can't do much, but we, it's, it's not even a question. We're already doing stuff. That, that, that the problem is that we're doing the wrong kind of stuff to the ocean already through food choice. Um, and so we can all actually change things by shifting around our food choice and actually make a positive impact rather than the negative impact that we're already doing. Yeah, I love that. Um, one, of the, one of the shifts you talk about is, is going to uh, a plant-based diet, and it might be an obvious one, especially for this community, but um, how, how does shifting to a plant-based diet um, on a macro level affect the, the land and the oceans? Mm. Well, I think there was a study, was it, I don't know if anyone's familiar with the study, was it, uh, I think it was Oxford University published um, that by far shifting to a vegan diet is the most effective thing we can do for the environment, not just for the ocean, not just for animals, but the whole planetary ecosystem. Uh, I think it reduced a person's carbon footprint by like 73% or something ridiculous. Um, and so if you look at, you know, when, when someone, I was actually on a live stream with a, a captain from Sea Shepherd called Peter Hammerstead the other day, and we were talking about the impact that, that we all have with, with consuming seafood. And he was on a vessel out in West Africa. It was a shrimp trawler. And they found that basically for like every one shrimp they caught, about 10,000 other fish were caught and then discarded. So you have a prawn cocktail or a shrimp cocktail where, you know, let's say you have five prawns, that's 50,000 animals that would have died in the process of doing that. Could be small fish, could be turtles, could be dolphins, could be whales. Um, and so just a single meal, you can imagine the impact that that has. So it's huge, it's huge. That's amazing. Um, you kind of, you mentioned um, how the, the, the veganism, the effect of veganism, and I think two things that a lot of climate groups kind of neglect to talk about are veganism and the oceans. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk about why climate activism and climate groups seem to ignore the ocean in their, their agenda and their conversation? Yeah, it's something I briefly brought up in my talk today at the Planted Expo, was that I really feel like there's um, a real problem with, uh, is people familiar with carnism, the concept of carnism and melanin? I, I feel like that's the reason why. Um, we have huge environmental organizations with hundreds of millions of dollars at their disposal who are meant to be in charge of sorting these problems out. And yet, the people that are in charge in, 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 in figuring out how do we save the ocean, how do we protect the environment, they're operating from a carnist perspective, fundamentally, where there's no reason for them to ever inquire into animal agriculture or the fishing industry because the axiomatic presupposition as, as that they're coming from is that, well, we need those industries. We need meat to survive. We need omega-3 to survive. Therefore, th how could we ever question that industry? And so that's part of the reason why these big COP26 or COP21 or these big go governmental conferences, they achieve basically nothing. And they spend, I mean, the COP26 in Glasgow that I was at um, in November last year, I think they spent something like 300 million on just the police on the event. Wow. Because you have all these delegates from around the world, all these politicians coming in. 300 million is, I mean, if you probably amounted all the money that gets put into protecting the ocean, I, I, I mean, I doubt it would come to that amount. Okay, so you got one event being policed, costing that much money. So th these events are a sham in my eyes. People can disagree with me, that's fine, but that's, that's my opinion. I've been to enough of them that, that I'm just fed up with them. I just don't think they're achieving anything. And the, the main core problem is that these invisible belief systems are really what's driving everything. It's driving our governments, which are just comprised of people with their own limiting belief systems 
and carnism is just everywhere. It's, mm. it's just in the environmental conservation world, carnism is just absolutely everywhere. Should we, should we break down um, kind of the language of carnism for those that don't understand? Like Absolutely. We, we normalize yeah. things. Um, can you kind of break that yeah. down so that we have a kind yeah. of a language understanding? So it was coined by um, Melanie Joy, who I believe is a uh, psychologist, um, who, who basically described the phenomena of this invisible belief system that indoctrinates us into viewing the killing and eating of some, some animals as, as normal and necessary and other animals as wrong and unjustifiable. Um, so you can see that there is outrage whenever a, a dolphin is killed in Japan, and yet there's no outrage whenever fish are caught off the coast of France, for example. And yet when we did the maths and we showed it in the film, you know, roughly every year in Taiji, something like 700 to 800 uh, dolphins get slaughtered every year. Um, but off the coast of France, in a small sea bass fishery that comprises of just probably a handful of boats, uh, roughly 11,000 dolphins get killed just, just in catching fish. Um, and it's the same with tuna. We have trillions of you know, fish being taken out of the sea every year. Um, and I really think that's, that's the main attitude that's the problem. And it leads to divisive activism as well, uh, pointing fingers at certain countries, not reflecting on your own country's issues and, and what you can really do on your own dinner plate. So kind of staying on that climate activism, climate group kind of theme for a minute here. Uh, we saw a lot of, see a lot of greenwashing and euphemisms from, from ocean-wise locally here to, I know you, you talked about Dolphin Save mm -hmm. uh, in your documentary. Um, all these all these organizations that kind of appease people's consumer habits, um, but there's not necessarily any accountability to what they're doing. So can you kind of break down why uh, sustainability in fishing and in, in the ocean industry is is a myth and it's there's kind of no merit to the to this idea of sustainable fishing? Yeah, the main problem comes from the fact that organizations like the Dolphin Safe Tune Label don't actually have people at sea that can actually verify any of the claims that they get to justify if a kind of dolphin, of, of dolphin safe tuna is in fact dolphin safe. They rely on the word of the captain. So the captain, he's in charge of reporting on his piece of paper on his notepad how many dolphins were caught in that last net of, of, of tuna. Let's say there's like 30 dolphins in there, he can just write zero. Mm -hmm. And then they hand that information off to the, to the label and they say, well, great job. You've done a great, fantastic job. This is clearly a sustainable fishery. Um, there's even word of bribery um, and all kinds of conflicts of interest in those regards. Um, and as for the MSC, which is another big label, uh, do you have the MSC here in Canada? Ours is the ocean-wise. Okay, it'd be a similar story, I can guarantee it. Um, in the UK, the MSC is the big one. It's actually one of the biggest around the world. And again, they have a conflict of interest of basically the more fisheries they certify, the more income they get. They get a percentage of the sales or whatever it might be. Um, and often, they are simply trying to measure something called like maximum sustainable yield, which is, let's say you have a population of a certain marine species, like you know, a certain fish. They'll say, well, how many can we take so that next year there's enough to reproduce to get back to that same level? And then so they'll take that amount. But they don't actually measure the impact that, well, hold on, humans aren't the only ones targeting these sardines or whatever it is. That's the main food source for the whales, for the dolphins, for the turtles. So now you have these big megafauna in the ocean now competing for a smaller food source because we've taken the rest of it. Um, and it also doesn't look into the sort of interspecies dynamics. And so sustainable fishing is like, it's almost impossible. Right. In, in, the, in, in the years that I've looked into, into look, looking into this, when I spoke to Dr. Sylvia Oh, who's dedicated her life to this, it's just an impossibility. It's, it's like a myth that we, we, we like to use to make ourselves feel better. Yeah, we saw it actually here in Canada on our East Coast with our um, Atlantic cod fishery. It mm -hmm. had a, an incredible collapse. Yeah. And it was based on that idea of like maximum 
um, yield that you could do sustainably. And it sounded like this great plan until they grossly, the Canadian government grossly overestimated how many fish they mm -hmm. could take. And it was devastating. And the cod fishery on that side of our country has never, never recovered. Mm -hmm. And it was this plan that was supposed to be sustainable and it sounded great and it had this environmental like kind of bent to it and people were all excited about it and then within a season they realized like they had taken almost all of the fish mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so something i find really funny is is when people say well you know ali you, the message that you're promoting is going to put people out of work and fishermen won't have jobs well, they're, they're putting themselves out of work and they have done for years um and there's like you said there's fisheries around this area as well the people who even want to go fish, there's, there's just no fish for them to even catch. And when you look at places in the world that have perhaps less stringent human rights laws, say places around Thailand, Indonesia, um, you're finding that with the diminishing catch that they're able to catch, what they're able to get, um, they're now having to spend longer and longer out at sea in order to try and catch a fewer and fewer amount of fish. And so they're having to burn through more fuel, the boat has more maintenance, everything goes up. And so the only way they can really cut their bottom line and make some a profit and, and cut their costs is on the labor. And that's where you get people being kidnapped on land, being made you know, false promises. Hey, you'll make loads of money, come on board. They get drugged. Next thing they know, they're waking up in the middle of the ocean on a boat and their cell phone's being confiscated. And you know, we spoke to a guy that'd been at sea for like you know, 10 years. Um, and it gets, it gets really, really uh, tragic because they're obviously scared of these people running away. And so what we've heard has happened is that there are small islands around the coast of like Thailand and Indonesia where the captains will offload the crew into literal cages on the island, like prisons on the island, go back to port, dump the fish, come back to the island, pick the crew up and go out to sea for another like couple of months. So it's, it, it gets to that level of, of insanity um, and all due to this diminishing, this diminishing catch. That's insane. Um, I was just going to say, I think that speaks to the sustainability of it, that they can't even sustain doing it in an economic model that makes sense. If you're resorting to, to slavery and uh, you know, human rights issues, um, if that's the only way that you can make fishing make sense, like, you have to be questioning what's on your plate. You know. Mm. Um, on that same side, one of the facts that I think blew my mind the most was the subsidies. Mm -hmm. And I think when people are you know, going to McDonald's and getting a fish fillet or ordering, you know, a salmon or whatever, and they see nine or ten dollars, they think, oh, this is affordable, you know, like I can, this can be a part of my lifestyle. Um, but the, what they don't re realize is the true cost, that our governments are, are greatly subsidizing the cost of, of seafood or fish. Um, and you mentioned in your doc that, you know, a lot of these, these fishermen are, and, you know, p these vessels are, are chasing subsidies. They're not actually chasing fish. So can you kind of break down the global the global sub subsidies, the, the true cost of um, what it is to, to catch a, a fish? Yeah. So these, these vessels are like $100 million vessels. You don't imagine that, but, but they require massive loans from banks to, to, buy these, to buy these boats, which then, of course, incentivizes those, those uh, captains to do all kinds of very destructive behaviors and unsustainable, well, I don't even think it exists, uh, behaviors to try and, try and pay off the debts of the boats. But there was a great article that came out a couple of years ago in that geo. They did a really thorough investigation about the global um, subsidies with fishing industry. And they, they found that about 50% of all high seas fishing, which is all the fishing that kind of goes on just outside the, the coastal areas, 
50% of the world's fishing industry um, would not be able to survive if it wasn't for fishing subsidies, meaning they would just instantly go out of business. The remaining 50%, the majority of those would probably just about scrape by. And so these fishing boat vessels are only going out to sea to qualify them to receive the subsidies. Does that make sense? Um, and so if they weren't able to go, even if they don't catch anything, they're still eligible for the subsidies. And um, there's some pretty crazy facts in Europe. There's a lot of countries that are landlocked. They don't have fishing fleets. They don't have that kind of culture. And yet they're still paying into the Europeans big pot of subsidies. And some of them are giving hundreds of millions away to subsidies and they're getting literally like zero back in fish value, even if they were to eat, the, eat it. So it's, it's an insane process. And I think that's really undermining a lot of the efforts of like the vegan movement who which are trying to it's a very sort of um it's like a boycott based you know supply and demand based kind of movement that the vegan is, vegan movement is based on and yet we're not able to really re reflect that accurately in the market because all these subsidies are sort of interfering with it yeah because if people start boycotting fish you'd imagine that the fishing industry would kind of stop but the subsidies are just continuing to let it happen and allow these boat captains to make a profit um yeah and is there kind of like a back and forth, like the the fish the fishing industry gets the subsidies, and through those subsidies, the fishing industry like donates back to government? Like it doesn't really make sense in terms of efficiency of money being spent. You know? like, <laughs> it doesn't make like any sense. They seem yeah. to be like locked to these giving these subsidies, even though the return is so yeah. so poor. Yeah. I mean, the number you shared, uh, just to like give context to this, thirty-five billion dollars annually. Uh, for for fishing subsidies and we broke that down and it's basically 98 million dollars a day mm -hmm. so like during covid like you know there were there there were grants and subsidies where people were getting a little bit of money but imagine 98 million dollars a day that's mm -hmm. what the fishing industry gets that's not just for one year that's been going on for decades yeah. unbelievable uh, so you mount it all up and this is this money is going not towards protecting the ocean or making making things these things better. These money, this money is going towards bigger destructive boats to go out there and absolutely kill everything that's there, and uh, it, it, it it's insane. Uh, it, it's one of the, the the big calls to action that we have is that we need to tackle the subsidies. Yeah, people are people are fishing not for fish; they're mm -hmm. fishing for the subsidies, exactly. right? That's like that's what makes it profitable. Actually, going out and getting fish is like not what is profitable for them mm -hmm. it's that desire to there's money to be had and so we might yeah. as well go do it but that that should really probably annoy a lot of people like even like say that a lot of vegans here pay you pay tax that tax is going to the fishing industry right yeah some of that money will go into paying for the fishing industry for someone else to have cheaper fish yeah 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 and then you think about like you had mentioned earlier you know some of the criticism that you might face is like oh but like all of the, all of the jobs, all of the jobs that will be lost, and it's like, well, if we took that subsidy money, mm -hmm. like, what kind of jobs could we create? What kind of industry could be created to yeah. replace that yeah. and to employ people in pro probably a healthier way too for them yeah. than this? You know, they're going out there, and you don't really know what your yield is going to be. And obviously, the the people that you described that are basically prisoners. Yeah. But in ter we think in terms of like our context of North America or, or you know more developed countries where there is some some regulation. Uh, and it's not as wild as that story yeah. you shared, but like the, the industry that could support those workers, the money is there. Just, just imagine what you could do with that money. Yeah. You could, you could first of all, uh, create a fleet of fishing, of, of like ex-fishermen who could then be operating uh, basically what Sea Shepherd do. Sea Shepherd have like five big boats, that's it. 
They have like a, a number of small ones. And that is literally the only people around the planet that are actually going out there to enforce law at sea. There are hundreds of pages of laws for the ocean and no one's out there regulating it. It's the Wild West. Yeah. Right? And there's like, what did you say? 4.6 million fishing boats out yeah, there? Yeah, roughly. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so there's five boats versus 4.6 yeah. million boats yeah. regulating exactly. the ocean. Right. You got it. You, you, you're starting to wrap your head around this? So <laughs> you, 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 could, you, could, you could take ex-fishermen who are, are trained... To, to operate boats and give them a fleet of basically police vessels, right? So a country is so territorial, you know, we're seeing what's happening in, in Ukraine and everything. The oceans are open. So you, you, have, you have a huge amount of plundering and outright piracy happening all around the coast of West Africa, East Africa, where you have other, other wealthier fishing nations coming into those waters because Liberia's not got a navy, right? Yeah. Sierra Leone's not got a navy. Eritrea, Ethiopia, they, they, you're right. So they're just stealing, stealing millions a day in, in, in fish. So you could first of all do that. You could subsidize the vegan seafood industry, right? Uh, you, could, you could create, uh, you know, plant-based aquaculture, right? So kelp farming and, and all those kinds of marine plants. Marine plants are fantastic. You know, they're high in calcium, they like protein, those kinds of things, iodine. You can also create incredible bioplastics from certain types of seaweed. It's just such an exciting space. And yet, rather than putting the money into that, we're putting it into like the exact opposite of what we should be. Right. Yeah. And like an industry that's that's dying mm -hmm. and taking a lot of life with it, mm -hmm. right? Which yeah. is just awful. And yeah, so so it's so um, disappointing when we hear about it. And you know, lots of people here we we understand veganism and we think of like land animals and you know the the cost of uh, industrial agriculture and all that and, and the detriment to the environment, to our health, ourselves, and obviously, you know, the, the animals, of course. And it seems like there's a shift in thinking when it comes to the sea that it's like, it, maybe because it is so unregulated and like, you know, to whom does it belong mm -hmm. apart from like we all belong to it and it yeah. all belongs to us. You know, we do literally all own the high seas. Like yeah. it's, the, it's the commons. Um, yeah. So, so how like can we start? Won't. How can we start to like educate people and get them to be passionate about it and care about it? I know that's something you talked about mm. earlier today, like act, acting on your passions. But like, what are what are some things that you would you would love to see people do? Encourage people, or even like things that need to shift at like a higher level of mm. like governmental cooperation to start to say this is it, it's all at stake for all of us, and we need to we need to make steps together collaboratively. I think there needs to be more legal action, like lawyers getting involved in this. And we had some lawyers from New York contact us after the film was released to, and they're working on suing the Dolphin Safe label for just, you know, uh, is it mis false advertising? Yeah. It's basically so, fraud, isn't it? Yeah, it's fraud. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's absolutely fraud. They've never been able to prove that it's Dolphin Safe. The guy said it on camera in our film that we can't prove it. Um, it's a no-brainer. Um, so I'd like to see more stuff like that happening. Um, and also when you have the high seas, which belongs to everyone, like I belong, I own parts of the ocean, you own parts of the ocean, it's all part of it. So to have a private enterprise exploit for profit the commons which belong to everyone else, it's just outright stealing. Right. So every time a whale's being killed, like that, I'm not about ownership of animals or anything like, like you know, wild animals, but like there's an element of like, those whales are just as much our companions as, you know what I mean? So that there's, a, there's a certain element of like theft going on. And so there's all this like weird legal stuff that we need to start looking into. Um, the challenge is a lot of this stuff is happening so far out at sea, no one's out there to really enforce it. But at least if we can get the legal precedence in place, then you can enforse it better, yeah. right? So I'd like to see more legal action, more people with 
specialities in law, get involved with this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to anyone who listening who's yeah. a lawyer and can help us and decommission decommission some of those uh, those those fish boats, those trawlers, yeah. and make no them more more sea shepherds. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> we need we need lots all hands on deck to use the appropriate <laughs> pond. All hands on deck. <laughs> yeah. 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 Fishing ponds, we got them. Um, we've got three dads up here, so dad jokes all night. <laughs> it's going to happen. It's bound to happen. <laughs> so kind of staying on that idea of, of the true cost. So we've, we talk about the subsidies, but there's also the bycatches. Like one, one fish doesn't equal one fish. Can you kind of uh, explain, um, you know, the big net, the, the, the trawling, um, the big net fishing, and what that equates to? And when you when you buy one fish, what you're actually contributing to? Mm. Well, like I said earlier, you know, like one one shrimp could could equal like ten thousand animals. Um, it really depends on where you are in the world, what kind of fishing gear you're using. Um, and the point is, like, like uh, as a vegan, I, I don't think like, oh, well, I want to kill one animal as long as it doesn't kill those of others. It's like, well, the, the, the death of one animal is bad enough. So, <laughs> but but the thing is, it's, it, it, it is a huge, uh, hugely inefficient and destructive process with the fishing industry. You're basically dipping in a huge net into an area you can't see to try and catch a certain type of fish. You have no idea what you're catching with it. Um, so it's inbuilt in the process of fishing. You can't really avoid it. There's certain methods like pole and line, which kind of like avoid bits of it. But the thing is you get with pole and line fishing in a certain area of the ocean where there's tuna migrating past it, sure, that one boat may be pole and line, but there's like all these other boats around it fishing in all kinds of other ways. And so ultimately it is putting pressure on those populations. Um, but yeah, these huge, these trawl nets are massive. Like you might remember in the film, they can you know, uh, hold like 13 jumbo jets that you know, big as a soccer field. And see, I said the word soccer, not football. There we yeah. go, there we go. <laughs> um, thank thank can, you for the Canadian <laughs> listeners. Thank you Translation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A football field's bigger, so it might be... Uh, well, in that case, a football field, yeah. <laughs> um, they can still, you know, it just just massive nets. Um, and can you talk about like the bycatch, like how many, how many whales and dolphins? I think like yeah. people have a weird association like you know, they go to SeaWorld and they like they they have an attachment to dolphins and mm -hmm. orcas, and they value those those lives with a different different weight than they do, say, a codfish or something. I, you know, like yeah, like yeah. you said, they're all individuals and it's yeah. all equal. But just for perspective, people are going to catch fish, but you know, hundreds of thousands of dolphins and That's whales right. are also. Um, you know, being innocently murdered in this in this yeah, bycatch. So just, just, and these numbers are ballpark figures because it's so hard to get these measurements measurements accurately around the world. So, for example, uh, the number that's been used most often to talk about the the bycatch of whales, dolphins, and porpoises is the three hundred thousand a year number. I spoke to a conservationist last year, and he believes that just in Europe alone, the number could actually be only for the common dolphin a million a year. So the, the, the scope of uh, the, the range here that we're talking about is huge. All you've got to know is that it's the leading threat to dolphins and whales, period. Okay. Uh, same with sharks. Some say, that, again, the range is like from 50 million a year to like 100 million a year to 120 million a year. So you're talking about massive, unfathomable quantities of sharks being taken out of the ocean. And the uh, same goes for basically every other species in the ocean. You can look at sea turtles roughly every year estimates around 500,000 sea turtles being killed in nets every year. Uh, I believe it's somewhere in the region of a million seabirds. Um, yeah, it goes on and on. And it also impacts like, you know, polar bears and things like that because those nets drift around the ocean, they end up in the Arctic and they, they entangle these animals as well. Um, and there's also like indirect bycatch when it comes to like, well, I don't know if you'd call it indirect bycatch, but basically due to the diminishing food source for these animals, animals are dying off due to just not having enough food. So the same might go for a lot of 
a lot of whales. Like I often wonder, and I can't prove this, that part of the reason why a lot of whales are eating the plastics are in the sea is that they just don't have their natural food source. Their stomachs are empty and they want to eat something that fills it. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's a theory. Yeah. <laughs> but I just want it that there's just a, such a decline in their, in their natural food source. So across the board, it's wiping it out and uh, the story's the same. Yeah. And that bycatch, like, it's not like uh, they're, it's being used. No. It's what happens to it. No, uh, so it just gets thrown overboard. Right. Um, I think uh, there was there was some facts that I was trying to put into the film, but we just couldn't squeeze it in. And, and it, we basically worked out that roughly, uh, and we had some controversy around this number in the film. We, we talked about how 40% of the, of the catch per year is, is bycatch and it's thrown overboard. That number is debatable. Could be more, could be way more, especially with the shrimp, tr- uh, shrimp fisheries. It could be a bit less. But I basically worked out that if you look at the per capita like seafood consumption of the whole of Africa and the whole of Europe and the whole of the United States and you amounted that much seafood that would roughly be able to be f- that you could feed those people the United States all of Europe and Africa on just the bycatch that gets thrown overboard anyway um, which is crazy so we're throwing that level of food waste into the ocean which would have fed the whole continent of Africa right. Europe and the United States it's unbelievable I mean we're so concerned about food waste at grocery <laughs> stores and in our yeah. kitchens and and one of the numbers I pulled was 7.3 million tons of fish, dolphins, turtles are killed each year and discarded. So imagine if we had, if we were contributing those subsidies again, back those subsidies to, um, you know, agriculture that was feeding people instead of just contributing to food waste. 7.3 million tons of, of animals are just being thrown off as, as bycatch. It's just the farthest thing from sustainable. Yeah. And, you know, we... We talk about food waste, and we talk about all these other, other things that are often more greenwashing and marketing than than genuine concerns. Yeah. Um, one of the ones in terms of, of greenwashing that really hit home for me too is there's there's such a big push here, and not to like diminish. I think you know small things incrementally can make big changes, but there's such a big push here around plastic straws. <laughs> it's like yeah. the number one concern. You know, we yeah. see posters ban the plastic straws. Um, you know, we have customers. I've got a a juice and smoothie business like that are like shame on you for having plastic straws uh, combustible plastic straws um, but wh- you said it so eloquently that it's like banning toothpicks instead of logging you know like yeah, for to save the Amazon rainforest yeah to ban toothpicks it makes no sense yes yeah, it's such a it's such a drop in the ocean another plan I have to take that one out. There we go. Dad jokes. <laughs> let's, see, let's see. Let's count how many we can get through <laughs> we tonight. We should have done like uh, oh, yeah, ocean pun bingo or something. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's insane. So um, it, it's, it's now become more aware. Like people know some of these facts now. But yeah, 0.03% of the plastic entering the sea is plastic straws um, as opposed to fishing gear, which um, there's all kinds of facts. So in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, it's about 46% just fishing nets. The rest of the percentage is other types of fishing gear, fish traps, fish crates, fish ropes, uh, I say boys. Do you guys say buoys? Buoys. Buoys. This is Canadian terminology. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Points. On, yeah. And then on European beaches, it's roughly like again like 40, 50 percent of the plastic on European beaches is fishing gear. Um, and yeah, like hardly anyone has been talking about it. Sure, since the release of the film, they have been, but there's been a lot of shame about sort of small pieces of plastic, which really don't like. Yeah, like there should be alternatives. Like why not use a paper straw? Sure. Um, but like, let's remember that if, if, if the analogy is that the boat, boat is sinking, let's plug the big hole and worry about the little ones later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think um, 
here here in uh, BC, you know, we we pride ourselves. We talk about how you know we're on we're on the the west coast, and this is a, a fishing community where fish are such a big part of our culture. And we were just looking at some of the stats uh, here in BC, and you know, we celebrate salmon in our storytelling and our artwork and and so many things like BC is a a fish culture. It's um, but when we look at some of the numbers, uh, Dean, you brought some of them up. Like our, our salmon here are, are just as depleted as these other stories, and it's it's happening here in Canada. Yeah. Um, can you break down some of those numbers, Dean? Yeah. Well, what was really interesting, and maybe something that we could talk about, was obviously Seaspiracy focuses on what's happening in the ocean, um, but with with our salmon here, they are they're spawning salmon, so they come up inland quite far, all the way into the interior of our province, up um, spawning streams and. Uh, 100 and 170 years of data was looked at by scientists and they discovered and calculated that 85% of the waterways, that inland waterways that the, the coastal salmon that we have here used for spawning are now not available due to uh, whether it's like damming or just construction, human caused impediments into nature, the changing of our, our, of our forests and roadways and all of this stuff, but 85%. So we have those salmon who mm. are genetically designed to return to the place where they were spawned from every year are finding that those those creek beds where they yeah. went to are, are not accessible. And so, you know, the the impact of this, even in our own community here, is is hugely detrimental. And we often just think of, oh, it's overfishing or perhaps it's it's climate change and it's the warming of the sea causing the salmon to stay further up north or whatever it might be, but it is also our own, the way that we build and develop and use our land that is affecting our seas here. And I'm wondering, have you come across similar stories like that where, you know, whether it's like what's coming off the land into the ocean, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. affecting yeah, sea life? Yeah, we can talk about that for a while. I mean, yeah, so it, it is about land use as, as well. Um, the problem is that a lot of those fish are being caught at sea and so they can't return back because they've been, they've been killed. Um, and that process, that whole ecological process is so fascinating because they're obviously carrying huge amounts of nitrogen in yes. their bodies from the ocean. And then when they're being, when the bears and the wolves and the eagles feed on them, they carry that, their bodies into the forest. And that's, was it David Suzuki? I think he did. Yeah, yeah. So he, like, he showed that the nitrogen that is in those big red, redwood forests like, is all just from the salmon. So the, f the salmon are, are really responsible for the big redwood forests. Um, and so the, just the megafauna that then no longer have that food source. It's the same in Scotland. The same same issues happening there. It's it's like yeah, 80, 90% gone. Um, but when it comes to like runoff from the land, that's a huge issue. That's also result as a result of uh, the the animal agriculture, the livestock farming, the the fertilizers that they use. Again, it's nitrogen based. Um, it goes into the sea. Nitrogen makes crops grow. It also makes algae grow. And so when it goes there, boom, you get an, uh, an algae bloom, and then that rots, and then it sucks all the oxygen out of the sea, and then nothing can live there and these zones are getting bigger and bigger every like four years is it i think they're doubling or something i, I read a crazy fact about that um and so yeah these dead zones are a massive problem again linked predominantly to animal agriculture right and and then so maybe in reverse too like we talked about what we're extracting from the sea and there's this idea of like fish feed or fish meal mm -hmm. and we're extracting all of these animals from the sea and it's not even the bycatch mm -hmm. right like that might in some way like minimize the wastage uh, but it's not even the bycatch. We're literally pulling living animals, beings out of the sea and processing them and feeding them to livestock, mm -hmm. fish, cows, or, or pigs, cows, all of these things. Um, 
to feed them stuff that they would never really eat in the first place. It mm-hmm. seems, A, a little bit unnatural to me, and then just like a, a wastage upon wastage to mm-hmm. say, hey, we're going we're gonna to feed all of this like calories that we've ripped out of the ocean and disturb that whole ecosystem to yeah. animals that were never meant to eat it to fatten them up so that we can eat them. It's like terribly inefficient yeah. and so destructive in the meantime. Yeah, it's, it's roughly like, a th- I think it's a third of wild caught fish are fed to livestock. Um, which is just huge, huge amount of, of wildlife that's being then funneled into the mouths of farmed animals. Um, and then there's the issue of, of obviously farmed fish uh, and the huge amounts of crops that are being used to uh, an, an animal feed and, and, and other fish that have been caught and then all the fish oil to, in order to feed them. And these salmon farming companies are really sneaky. So they'll say, okay, well, we only need 1.2 kilos of feed to make one kilo of salmon. Isn't that great? You only lose like 200 grams in the process. That's pretty efficient. But what they're not telling you is that they're measuring the full live weight of a intact salmon, which is again, like our bodies are mostly water. So that's water weight. And then they have the 1.2 kilos of feed, which is processed, dehydrated and extracted fish oil, which you need, you need a, sh- you need a ton of fish to make a small amount of fish oil. Yeah. And so you're, they're extracting that and putting in that into, oh, see, we don't really need much. If you looked at like the real weight of the food that actually was used to, to fatten those fish, you're talking like you could fill up this whole restaurant with the amount of fish that's required to make just like not very much right. wild, uh, uh, farmed salmon. And um, the crazy thing is that these salmon, they're, they're just not designed to be in these kinds of cages. So they get all these sicknesses and it's just, it's just, it's just a nightmare. And so you have entire cages of like pens of fish each one containing thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of fish just dying off. So you have, again, like I said, this whole restaurant, imagine, filled with the feed to produce like a small amount of fish and then them dying off as well. They're just all for nothing. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a colossal, insane process. Yeah, and fish farming was big, is big here and it was kind of billed again as like a solution, right? Like this is like, hey, this is great. We can do this. We can... You know, it, it's it's helpful, it's positive, and then we started to see the reality of like these yeah strange infections that would go through, mm-hmm. and then the question was like, how is this going to impact the wild salmon, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, it's it's fascinating that we're trying so hard to be creative, and I mean, human beings are inevitably creative, and we are we will problem solve and find these these solutions, but like sometimes we manufacture a solution that <laughs> becomes more of a problem yeah. rather than just like yeah. addressing kind of the root and the simplest issue right yeah. but it's in it's ingrained and it's trying to change people's position and understanding of of their relationship to the sea and of course their relationship to the animals that are in there mm. right yeah, yeah precisely man yeah, yeah. It, it, like we're, we're using our ingenuity to get ourselves further and further and further and further into this problem and this is why for me it comes back to these like belief systems okay like let's start addressing these things like why do we have such a urge to, to kill any animals like where does that come from and yeah and and, and looking into that more um, as opposed to like finding smarter ways to kill animals or smarter ways to make cows like less methane productive or whatever and let's genetically modify them. It's just like this, or we could just stop, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's the other thing. Hey, hey, why don't, we, why don't I think of that? So, yeah. 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 One of the shifts for myself was uh, when I first became vegan was seeing animals as individuals. Like we'd see these big lofty numbers of, you know, X, X amount of millions of cows were killed or whatever, but we kind of, desensitizes the individual individuality of, of you know eight million individual animals being killed when we kind of have these large numbers so why do you why do you think we're so disconnected from seeing cell uh, sea life and fish as the same way that we see land animals like I think uh, 
people say, oh, fish don't feel, um, and they try to kind of make excuses for, for sea life versus land life. Um, mm. How do we connect sea life as individuals? and, and Go spend of, time with them. Yes. Like, we just don't spend time with marine life. Um, even even wildlife on land. I, even myself, like I, I, I see myself as someone who like absolutely loves nature and the, and the environment and animals. But really, I spend very little time in, in my day-to-day life out there. And so that's, that's, those are some things that I've been challenging about myself recently and, and why we'll be moving to Australia and just to be out there with the wildlife more because we're just not spending time with it anymore. We're just on our phones all the time and just always in, indoors. And it's just, I think there's just a... We talk about disconnection. I mean, it's just right there. <laughs> if we're not spending time with these animals, we can't get to know them. Uh, and that's why someone like Sil- Dr. Sylvia Earle, who spent like, the world record amount of time of, with someone being underwater... Um, who's who spending hours upon hours with these marine animals and learning their personalities and just how freaking awesome they are. Uh, I think that's the first step. Spend more time with them. And, and if you can't, then I guess documentaries are a first step. But yeah, yeah just, yeah. We, we can definitely, living where we are, I mean, we're like a, yeah, a stone spoiled. throw from, from the ocean. I think yeah. we can all connect to, yeah. to the oceans the same way we can connect to, to nature. Um, talking about the sharks, I thought that was such an interesting thing too. Like there's a the, there's a fear of sharks. So you know you see a shark, everyone screams, and and people are happy. Some people are happy if, if sharks aren't in the equation. And I remember remember seeing this uh, YouTube doc on uh, wolves being reintroduced to uh, uh, yeah. Yellowstone, Yellowstone Park, yeah. and by bringing that apex predator back into Yellowstone, how all of these other species thrived and returned to the parks. Uh, can you kind of touch on how? Sharks and other apex uh, animals in, in the oceans, how they contribute to a, a healthy ecosystem and why they are important? Yes, yeah, so I want to first talk about the fear of sharks. Uh, so we've got to thank Steven Spielberg for that with yeah, the jaws. Yeah, that was quite a cultural moment. Um, and there's only a few species of shark which can be aggressive um, if, if they're curious about, you know, uh, especially if you've got a surfer out there who's competitive and he's being quite aggressive in the water, then, then the shark's curious about what it is and they don't have hands, so they use their mouth to sort of do a test bite and that's where a lot of it comes from. Um, but most sharks like, have no interest in human beings. We don't resemble their food source and as long as you're not a threat to them, there's no reason really. Um, and so, you know, one of my friends is, is Paul DeGelder. Uh, you know, he, he was someone that was doing a Navy exercise, again, aggressive in the water when a bull shark attacked him and... and took his arm and his leg, but he's now like the biggest shark activist there is, which is really awesome. Um, so there's a lot of like, again, false beliefs around fear um, when it comes to sharks. And sharks, you know, they've been around for like 400 million years. They've been on earth longer than trees have even existed, which I, I, I can't even wrap my head around. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they've survived these, these mass extinction events that we're often told about. And, and now for the first time ever, Going, you know, going extinct because of us. There's so many species: scalloped hammerheads, regular hammerhead sharks, bull sharks, tiger sharks. 95% gone. 90% gone. 99% of their population is gone. I can't even fathom that number. Uh, how can we have lost 99% of these sharks in just like last 50 years? How has that happened? Unbelievable. How has that happened? That's wild. Yeah. There's it's a conspiracy. Check yeah. it out. <laughs> There's a. There are people who are like shedding light on, you know, kind of countering the narrative of like these sharks are just like bloodthirsty creatures out there to eat anything and everything. And especially you when you're swimming in the beach, swimming off the beach or whatever. Um, there's a great guy uh, in Malibu or in like the Los Angeles era area. Um, his Instagram is um, 
uh, the Malibu artist, and he flies drones out over while people are paddle oh, boarding yeah, and stuff, and like it. it shows like great all, white sharks, all just the like sharks surrounding him, and and they're totally docile and yeah. like non-threatening, and I think it's just more of those things respecting the fact that they're wild mm-hmm. animals, and mm-hmm. when we enter their their place, like things things obviously can happen, and we know people have lost their lives and been terribly injured, but on the whole, like the damage that we are doing to sharks mm-hmm. is. It's not even it's not even in the same realm of reality in terms of how they have inflicted damage or injury or death, unfortunately, on people. Yeah. But we have that narrative that they're out there and we have to be afraid. Which and only fear. makes it worse. Yeah. Because if you're afraid of something, you can either do like one of like two or three things, then you fight or flight. Um, and, and so if you're if you're if you see it as a threat, then it's very likely that that person is going to be aggressive to the shark. You know, to get away, you know, splashing away, you're trying yeah. to hit the shark, <laughs> you're, you're gonna lose. Yeah. Um, and so that just builds into it. And I think actually, there's very few like wild animals that are just, I mean, I kind of, there's, there's, I've been doing research into Australia recently, we're moving there and everything. And there's so many people that just handle these deadly snakes, you know, like Steve Owen, if someone's like a childhood hero, that these, these, these are snakes that were like with one bite could kill like a uh, hundred people. They're not aggressive, you know. If you're not aggressive to them, they're not aggressive back. And I just think there's so much fear that human beings have inherited about animals just through a state of ignorance yeah. that is just in all of us. And I challenge that about myself. Like, there's even still for me, there's like fear around certain animals. And I was like, what is that even about? Like, I, don't, I really don't think there is real need to be afraid of most of these animals, yeah. if at all. Yeah. So I'm challenging that about myself. Totally. Yeah. Saying. And if we sh- if we shifted, because you still have to be aware. But if yeah. we shifted fear to respect, yeah. you got to respect those animals. Yeah. That brings with it a whole nother level of like, okay, so how do we care for them? It's yeah. not just be, be although they're scary, so let's get rid of them, mm. but to not have that fear, but to have that respect and say, how do we engage safely? How do we respect like their environment and mm. what their purpose is rather than just like, let's let's get rid of them because they're dangerous. Right. I mean, yeah. if, we, if we use the logic that we use for our fear of sharks, I mean, I think 10 people a, die, 10, 10, 10 people a year die or something like that from sharks. Mm we would be completely fearful of every human we came yeah. in contact with. You know, we'd well, be like, oh my COVID. God, there's another human. Let's, yeah. like, let's hide. Well, we did know? get to that stage in COVID, right? Of course, of course, of course. I'm thinking more just with like, uh, like homicides yeah. and violence right, in true. that yeah. sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, people, people obviously kill more people than, than sharks do. Yeah. But one thing that kind of shifted it for me with the sharks was um, kind of reframing. Um, I think I read somewhere that the sharks were like the architects of the ocean. That's right. Um, so, yeah. I can talk to that point. If you yes. like, they, they basically shaped all of evolution in the ocean because as the apex predator, all these other animals had l- then had to learn how to swim faster, learn their camouflage, learn their habitat, learn their hunting behaviors, all because of the shark. So if it wasn't for the shark, we wouldn't have the ocean that we have today. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have, well, a few hundred years ago maybe, we wouldn't have had this, these, these kind of species develop. And so, yeah, they're, they're kind of like the, the grand architect of the ocean and they need more respect. And if you take them out and go down the, the food chain, so per se, mm-hmm. um, the, the stage two apex uh, fish and whatnot, uh, right. they start to deplete the smaller fish and it just kind of creates this cycle where yeah. there's not enough food for the bigger fish in the ocean. Yeah, it's like you remove the top layer with those, those sharks and then, then it, like you said, the next species uh, overpopulate and then they wipe out everything else and they'll... They're gone, and now they've got no food source, and then you go boom, 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 until you basically just have sludge and jellyfish, which is a lot of the Mediterranean now, because yeah. they've lost, the, it's, it's the most depleted area of the world, uh, world's oceans, the Mediterranean Sea, and tourist destinations and beaches are having to shut down because of all the jellyfish, which you wouldn't have had if we didn't wipe out all the sea turtles, which would have naturally eaten those things, which again, comes back to the fishing industry. Yeah. I think uh, it'd be nice to kind of connect that to the climate change, 
climate change side of things, uh, just to give some perspective. I think there's a lot of focus on, on deforestation, Amazon, uh, old growth deforestation here in, in BC and in Canada. Um, but can you talk about like with with the dead ocean, there's there's no there's no us, there's no healthy planet. Um, just kind of the climate change implica- implications of of what we're doing to to our oceans. Yeah. So about eight out of every ten breaths that we breathe in comes from the ocean, and it's not in the water, right? It's, it's in the phytoplankton, and those are the microscopic marine plants which are responsible for the massive oxygen production on this planet. It's the reason why part of the reason why this planet is so habitable is because of these marine plants. But these marine plants, just like any other plant, require you know phosphorus and nitrogen and those kinds of things. But they need to stay in an area of the ocean near the surface for photosynthesis where there isn't much of those nutrients. And so they heavily rely on species like dolphins and whales who need to come to the surface to breathe, but need to go down to the depths to, to, to feed. And so when they go down to the depths to feed, they load up on, on, the, on food, they come to the surface to breathe, where they then release that waste, which then becomes the fertilizer. But this whole process is now being broken apart because we're starting to lose the whales, lose the dolphins, fish basically do the same thing. Um, and so by wiping out all these animals, we are taking away the agents which would have actually like helped take care of this whole ecosystem, which sequesters carbon and produces oxygen, not to mention produces food. Okay, so the phytoplankton produce the food for the krill and everything else, which then feed the whales and it just comes full circle. It's, mm. a, it's just a miracle how it all works. Um, and so, yeah, by, by, ta- by, by breaking into those cycles, you know, who knows what could happen. Um, so it, it, it's, it's tragic. Uh, and the second part of your question, I forgot. We, I don't. Uh, just kind of touching on the climate change side. So yeah. um, you know, it's a it's a carbon trap as well. Like a lot That's of right. a lot of um, well, all this carbon traps to the bottom of the sea floor. Yes. Which is part of the problem with sea uh, uh, bottom trawling is that those nets and those heavy weights are going down the bottom of the sea floor and disturbing that ancient sediment which has carbon that's been trapped there for thousands of years. And that's why last year the study came out that showed that uh, every year, bottom trawling alone, just that one method of, of, of fishing is responsible for as much as, if not more CO2 emissions than all of the world's air travel combined. Like you add up all the planes for the whole year and all their emissions, it just about amounts to, uh, if not less than the emissions of the sea, uh, of bottom trawling, which um, is nuts. Um, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. And, and, and as well as disturbing the sediment, they're also wiping out the kelp forests and, and the sea grasses. That's happened a lot in the UK. And guess what? Those are the plants that are most effective at carbon sequestration at a rate like 20 times higher than, than tropical rainforests. But like, it's, it's insane. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So literally protecting whales is protecting the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. And, and I'd like to see, you know, people that are involved with initiatives to, like, reforest the, the planet, putting more of those efforts into protecting those marine uh, plant ecosystems. I, I coined a, a term, which I, I haven't had time to pursue this project, but if someone wants to do it, uh, called kelp the ocean, as a way to help the ocean by growing kelp and things like that. It, it's, it, it's, it's a really fast way. If you want to like, create instant habitat, uh, instant sequestration, uh, instant... Uh, deacidification of the ocean, all of those benefits, just introduce like kelp and seagrass to areas that it's been wiped out from. I think that's a great point to kind of focus on because I think it can get intimidating. There's so many things that are wrong and there's so many problems and we've gone so far with this this fishing industry and these subsidies, uh, but we talk about kelping the ocean. I think that's like, that's that's a positive action that we can kind of put forward. Are are there other similar actions? Uh, You know, you talk about shifting to a plant-based diet, 
enforce, enforcing no catch uh, marine reserves and fishing subsidies? Are there other like yeah. actions, actionable steps that we can kind of walk away from this talk? And there's 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 three calls to action that, yep. that we say. It, it kind of revolves around stop, defund, protect. So stop would be in in stopping consuming and, and killing this marine wildlife. So it would be to go to a plant-based diet. Um, defund would be defund the subsidies. So that requires political pressure. And uh, Protect comes to our initiative that we have a, a petition that's nearly like a million signatures to demand governments protect 30% of the world's ocean from industrial fishing by the year 2030. However, I would say that you could lose the other two. We're not gonna save the ocean without seriously shifting towards a plant-based food system. It's just, it's just not gonna happen. Uh, that's, the, that's the sole biggest one for me. And it's actually the easiest. It doesn't require like years of campaigning and political pressure on governments. It doesn't require you to get these boats out in the ocean to try and protect. Just literally eating the kind of food that we have here. Yeah. It's 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 so simple. Yeah. No it's lawyers. So no lawyers to, no lawyers. to, to be rallied. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's incredible. And I know there's like, you know, oh, you're just saying that because you're vegan and you're biased. But no, literally, like that. There's just the evidence is there. I've seen it. It's 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 the biggest thing. Yeah. It's the biggest solution and it's just delicious as well, which totally, is really great totally, as a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. We were even having the conversation just over dinner, like it's it's that invitation to consider your diet because it's something that is happens multiple times throughout the day. Mm -hmm. We think about it, we become aware of it, we're more conscious of it. And it seems like it spills over into other decisions in our life, mm -hmm. right? Like the clothes that we wear, the places mm -hmm. that we go shopping, the the way that even we are politically active, mm -hmm. right? It, the, the simple change to what's on our plate really starts to affect our whole lives. And so that as a first step, I think is, is so critical, as you said, and then mm -hmm. it, it opens us up to become more aware of other issues that we can also tackle to say, hey, if I care in this way, like maybe I'll cycle more mm -hmm. and drive my car less. Oh, what is this about like phytoplankton? Right. I didn't know anything about phytoplankton and like that can be a huge source of drawdown like we're creating again all these amazing ways, you know, innovations of carbon sequestration, and yes, hundred percent, let's do it. Yeah. But at the same time, if it's as simple as like, well, they, it's like the forest, coming up with all these inventions, all these inventions of how right how we need to create a machine that like takes carbon out of the atmosphere. It's like, well, that's already invented. It's called a tree. It's called phytoplankton. It's already done. Let's you know, just yeah. no patent what, required. What is the science? What is this technology? <laughs> yeah. So it's like it, I just find it incredible that like the that when you make this decision that's that's actually a compassionate decision it's an ethical decision it's a loving decision it's a truthful decision you just i just find it amazing that we, that so many benefits come from that yeah like, like i'm just fascinated that like we could be, we could have lived in a universe where like killing was the good thing to do right like but we're not sharks like like for us like doing the loving thing is actually the loving thing for everyone yeah i, like, I just think that's awesome and like, it makes it accessible to people who are like yeah. yo i live in like saskatchewan the central province here or like yeah. i don't you know a landlocked place mm. where they're they don't have access to the ocean and it's not something that maybe they're they don't go participate in beach cleanup day because it's mm. a 10 minute drive or mm. walk from their house or whatever it might be but it's a decision that people can make who who care about the oceans but maybe have never been or seen or swam in it right um and yet they can participate in a system that still helps mm. right and i think that, that partly is exposing people to that awareness and it's like not taking the apathetic road of like, well, I, you know, I've never been to the ocean. I live so far away. Like, it's not really my fight, but like, it's all of ours. And people who don't live near the oceans are still dependent upon it. Yeah, because that oxygen from the ocean is is in the middle of you know Saskatchewan or Regina or whatever it is. Like, yeah. that's, that that oxygen's traveled. Right. We're, you zoom out far enough, we're just a little blue ocean speck. Yeah. Pale blue dot. Pale blue dot. Yeah.
You mentioned values just a few minutes ago, and um, that's something we always talk about is bringing our value system and bringing it to our plate, bringing it to our food choices. If we're, you know, believe in compassion, if we believe in reducing cruelty, uh, if we believe in sustainability for future generations, like how do our decisions reflect what's showing up on our plate? Um, But earlier in your talk today, you were talking about finding our values and our purpose and, and finding how we can project those into good things for our collective ecosystem, for collective humanity. Can you, can you kind of talk on purpose and values? Yeah, so the reason why I covered that in my talk was because shortly after the release of the film, our email inbox was getting somewhere between five to 10 emails every minute for weeks after the release of the film from people around the world, from people from small fishing villages in Japan to big cities in the United States, in Europe. And the questions and, and, and emails were a lot about a lot of things. But one of them was, what can I do? Like, how can I get involved, right? I'm inspired now, now what? And really, like, there's no way for me to help unless like, someone's identified what it is they're passionate about. Um, because you've got you to have fun. When things are fun, like, you don't have to worry about how motivated you are to do them, you just do it. So I talked about in, the, in my talk today like, how important it is in identifying what it is we're passionate about. And then, I talked about how when we apply our passion to helping the world in some way, our purpose gets revealed through that. And, and then I went on to sort of do, I'm, I'm very bad at maths, but I kind of made these equations that were showing that like what I found was over the last several years of making the film was that when you combine passion with purpose, it's like passion plus purpose equals obsession. And then that obsession is what leads to mastery at something. So you can actually like have the endurance to be able to like, you know, finally excel at something. Uh, and so those core values come down to like, okay, what are you passionate about? You know, how cur- you know, and that leads to curiosity and fascination. It breaks you out of being conformist to the way society thinks things should go. With humility, you're able to then challenge some of those belief systems that we've carried our whole lives, that our parents have told us. Um, and so these core principles, which you could read in a fluffy self-development book, I really think there are like core fundamentals to like dealing with you know, the environmental crisis. That's, that's, that's my thinking these days. Like that's, that's become a main focus of my own activism recently, is just really diving into that. And this can apply to anybody. You just have to find your passion, mm-hmm. and uh, there's, there's a path that creates more good with that passion, whether that's, yeah, I believe so. as we were talking earlier, if that's bodybuilding, you can encourage people to, like you know. Like Nimai Delgado. Like Nimai Delgado. Yeah. You, that can encourage people to connect more to their health and wellness, and that might connect to their plate. Um, so I think that's like a beautiful tip, and... I think we can start to wrap wrap up from from there so that people can get back to their their meals but uh I think one thing sometimes information can leave people intimidated uh overwhelmed uncertain of the the steps that that you can take and we we kind of went through a lot of actionable steps here but if people are feeling kind of overwhelmed by by all of this can you kind of leave us with uh, a message of hope a message of optimism um, why you think uh, you know we're going to be able to get through this versus like our oceans are just going to continue to be de- depleted? So first of all, I'd say breathe, and I'd say it's not a bad thing to be overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, like just allow yourself to feel overwhelmed for a bit, and then see what comes up. Um, I think whenever we start to like deny our emotions and how we're actually feeling, that leads to problems. And I actually think that that's the pandemic in our society. Like we are shutting down our emotions all the time and then we wonder why we're not empathetic. So like if you feel overwhelmed, feel overwhelmed and just see how far that goes and just see what comes up and like what fear are you avoiding there? So like in, that, in those situations, just ask yourself, what am I afraid of? 
Is it why am I afraid of afraid of feeling overwhelmed? Is it because I feel vulnerable or weak, or whatever? Where does that come from? Why do I feel that? So just keep going and going. You'll eventually get to something, and then uproot that, and then the, the fear will go. Um, so that's that's my little two cents on that. Mm. I love that. Thank you, yeah. Dina. Do you have uh, a few more questions before we get to our closer? Yeah, I just I'm just curious, like. Uh, you know, I love I love following your passion and understanding what it is that you can do. You know, that makes you uniquely you, and bring that into like the the world of like making a difference. Um, was filmmaking something you you had been passionate about like for a long time, mm. uh, ever since like you were a kid, or, or what's what's maybe the quick story of how you got into it, and then obviously using that um, that creative output to tell these stories that are so important. Yeah. So, first time I picked up a camera was was when I was about ten years old. Um, my mother refused to buy me another guitar <laughs> and so I, I picked up the camera and instantly I just it, I took a liking to it and I was also a very very shy kid I was the kid I just wanted to be in the corner of the room quiet didn't want to talk to anyone <laughs> yeah so, so yeah <laughs> makes sense it's funny how life works <laughs> um, and so I I grew up in Iran for a few years as a kid and when I moved to Iran I was the British kid I was the, I was like the white kid I was I was the different one and all I wanted to do was just disappear and I didn't want people to look at me and I was very self-conscious, low self-esteem. And then my family moved back to England and now I'm the Persian kid, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the whatever. And this is right around 9-11. And so like, oh, right, your dad's a terror, you know, all the rest of it. And so again, I just wanted to be invisible. And I, the camera gave me an opportunity to be able to be the one that does the looking with a bit of a safe distance between me and something. And so I just took a liking to it. Um, and then I just had a natural affinity to environmental things and love David Attenborough documentaries and things like that. I mean, how could you not? I think, yeah. I think everyone can probably relate to that. It's nothing special about me or anything. Um, but I decided that I just would go ahead and just, you know, I, well, I remember when I was 15, I, like someone asked me like, what would you want to do when you're older? Like at school, like what's your career's choice? And I felt like, you know, Nat Geo filmmaker documentary. Never thought it'd happen. I come from a very small town in England and, um, yeah, I kind of never thought I'd, I'd get back into it, but somehow or another, I just couldn't get away from it. Because again, that's just, that was always gonna be my passion. That was always gonna be my gift. I could try and deny it for years and years and years, but you'll always come back to it. Uh, and I think that's just what happened for me. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, I we are so grateful that you followed your passion for sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, everyone should follow their passion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. what about your passion for, for veganism? Where, where did that or originate? Well, I, I mean, it just originated from making sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, I became vegan years ago, you know, after realizing that, you know, what I was eating was, was a, a living being at one point. This was the body of an animal that didn't want to die. It had, you know, emotions. It had a, it had a, a you know, family. Um, and so when I started to become more aware about the implications of it at first, you know, I started becoming, well, this is cool. You know, I'm kind of losing weight. I'm getting fitter and, and whatever. And you start to become more aware about, well, hold on a minute. The, you know, when you watch Earthlings or something, like, wow, this is this is big. This is this is big, there's, and there's a lot of grief to go through with that. Um, and then understanding the environmental impact, and it just became bigger and bigger. I was like, well, this this is this is it. Like, this this, this makes so much sense that this is this needs to be a big part of what I do. Um, and so it continues to be. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I think we're all fortunate for the work that you're creating. I think uh, through your filmmaking, through the passion that you found, uh, you're shifting systems. You're shifting what's possible on this planet. You're giving us all hope. Um, and I think you're, you're challenging paradigms that need to be changed, old paradigms that we've accepted as normal and necessary, and we're seeing that they're, they're far from that truth. And I think because of films like yours and individuals like you, um, I get hope, you know? I think that's, I see what's possible through 
uh, documentaries like yourself and, and, and what you're sharing. So I'm grateful. I think all these people in this room are grateful. Uh, I think the society that we're, we're hoping will will make it uh, for future generations is, is grateful for what you're creating. So I just wanted to express that. Thank you. I, I'm grateful for, I mean, I, I really felt like I didn't make the film in the end. It was everyone like watching and sharing it. So I'm grateful for people doing their part and just sharing it around. I'm just forever going to be grateful for that. Um, and I appreciate you appreciating it. Amazing. We, we always have one question that uh, we close things out with. Uh, Dean, you want to bring it home over here? Yeah, sure. So, uh, and just an extension of a thank you to all of you for being here tonight. Um, listening and enjoying a, a, a delicious plant-based meal and like each one of us in this room can leave here um, hopefully change a little bit more in the desire to protect our oceans um, and look after all of these amazing creatures and beings that we depend on and depend on us and just that we're, we're infinitely and inextricably bound up together with this planet we're on so um, Zach and I started this podcast and we called it a little more good and our intention with that was um, that's what we wanted to do in the world. We wanted to see happen and spread. And um, we always ask our guests that's joining us, like, what does that phrase mean for you? How does it land a little more good? A little more good. I think it just means, you know, not measuring your own success based on other people or celebrities you see online. It's just like, you know, measure yourself against yourself or how you were yesterday or how you were last week. And, and, and sort of checking in on yourself is like, you know, am I living in alignment with my truth? Am I living in alignment with what I want to do in my life? Um, you know, are there, what are the things that are holding me back? Why are they holding me back? Um, and just trying to just improve ourselves. And I think that's how, like I said in my talk, that like I think improving the world comes from improving yourself first. So it's a good title for the podcast. Hey, thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you for coming to Vancouver, being part of the whole Planted Expo and Weekend, sharing your time away from your family um, to spread this good word and uh, do this good work that you do. So we're just, we're so Thank grateful. You. I've been Ali. spoiled. Thanks so much yeah, for your yeah. time. You guys need to do this. Thank you so much. Guys, I just got uh, notice from the kitchen. Uh, the next meal is coming out. I know we're all hungry, but we do have time for two to three questions from the audience if anybody has, has some. Ellie, I'll let you uh, well, that point and choose. Okay. Well, I have a question. Do you want to come up and use the mic so that we can all, all hear it? <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll repeat it. We'll repeat it. Not yet. Can you, can you repeat the question and just uh, I believe you're referring to when Stephen was talking about going up to a mountain near here somewhere for review. We haven't done it yet. It's tomorrow. Okay. okay. It's going to be a romantic me and Steve up a mountain. <laughs> Titanic. <Yeah>. Rose. Mountaintop <laughs> experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Hasn't happened yet. Thanks for holding him to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Deb. Uh, any other questions? Any other thought reflections? Favorite sea animal? Oh, don't do this to me. Um, can I give you like five? <laughs> yeah, top five. Well, top okay, five. so something that blew my mind while making the film is like, okay, if anyone knows this, don't answer it. But like, does anyone know how long a dolphin can hold their breath for? Just, just guess. Six hours? Six hours. Two okay. 20 minutes. Yeah. I was like, mm. whoa, like, okay, that's. There's human beings that can do that. Yeah. yeah. So I was trying to look into like, okay, why animal holds its breath for the longest? And there was like this like random seal that does it for like, I don't even know what it was. It was like a long time. I was like, well, okay, that's a really cool thing. <laughs> so next time someone asks me what's my favorite animal, I'll say that one. So it's that one. But I love, I love, 
yeah, sorry, was that? oh, sorry. <laughs> but like, I think like, you know, ch just tuna, I don't know, that's so random because everyone eats tuna and I used to eat so much tuna, but like looking at how freaking cool, they're like designed like bullets, they go so fast. And when you're up close to them, they have this like incredible like teal blue aqua like streak down the side with the yellow. I just think like if Nike designed a fish, it'd be a tuna. Yeah, I just think <laughs> that's awesome. there's just something really cool about tuna that- Just tuna. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I don't know yet. I guess we'll have to wait until tomorrow and I can look back on it. Um, I think it's just been really awesome to... I mean, I mean the film, sorry, the impact of the film. Oh, I see. Um, I think it's a good question. I think what's been really epic was to see that, you know, not only did protests start happening in various places, you know, Santa Monica Pier, there was a week, there was like several weeks long protests that were happening in Santa Monica Pier in California. And then we were seeing a lot of pressure being put on governments to try and do something about this. Retailers starting to reflect it. Um, but like I said in my talk, like what was really cool was that the plant-based seafood alternatives, which have always been on the fringes, no one really ate them, they've kind of just been really hard to get, were securing millions and millions and millions in investment after the film. I think one company got like $26 million investment after the release. Yeah, it was called the Seaspiracy Effect. Um, and so that's been really cool. And I think that's something that we're going to start seeing the benefits of as the months and years go by because that investment's going to go into innovation and distribution and so soon enough we'll all have more access to these kinds of things and we're already starting to see like plant-based uh, uh, salmon get really realistic and things like that so i'm 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 proud that it's actually had a tangible effect in the market because this this movie was very much talking about a product in the market which is the fish and so now seeing a direct solution to that has been just like couldn't get better yeah. yeah. Any other qu any other questions? Mm. Yes. Um. Yeah. Save the seas. Save, save the seas. <laughs> there, there, there's a lot of really good ones. I had some today, um, which was uh, carrot, salmon, and, and there was some tuna one. Obviously, there's good catch foods. There's there's various different companies. I've really gotten fond of. This isn't even a product. It, it's have you ever tried like fried banana flour, banana blossom? Wow, that, that's the texture of that for the UK for fish and chips. Banana flour, like who would have thought you could turn that into a Amazing. fish product. Yeah. But it tastes incredible. Like if it's done right with a good chef, like banana blossom fish is incredible. And it's like whole foods and whatever. And it's a byproduct and waste product of the banana fruit farming industry. So yeah. I think that's cool. Uh, any other? If, yeah. if people were inspired, just one one to kind of continue the, the conversation at home, if people were inspired by the film and want to continue their own education, are there other films or books that uh, you might recommend for them? Yes, there's a, there's a few films. Um, there's uh, there's one called Shark Water, mm. which, is, which is specifically just about shark finning mostly. Um, I think that's a Canadian... Uh, yeah, he, he died sadly passed away um, doing what he loved um, but and in terms of a book there's depends how much of an ocean nerd you want to be but there's a great book by Professor Callum Roberts who was in the film called The Unnatural History of the Sea that is fascinating and you start to realize the benchmark of what a healthy ocean would would have been and so there's a lot of historical records and so in, in Vancouver, I guess you're a little bit sport. You've got whales off the coast here, but where I'm from in the UK, there's just there's like basically nothing. There's no wildlife, and yet I'm very close to the White Cliffs of Dover, where I live, um, which is basically like where World War II basically happened. And you used to be able to stand on on the White Cliffs of Dover and look out to sea and see so much fish in the ocean. There'll be like black moving 
like you know blobs in the sea and then you'd see you know clouds of birds rain down and dive down and grab fish and then you'd see these you know dolphins and whales the blowholes and be chasing after it it'd be like a big scene from like blue planet 2 um and now you have to go to the far corners of the world to, to see this stuff um and yet it used to be everywhere mm. so the book goes into that and it goes into like all the historical stuff that happened and um about how during the early sort of colonialization that happened with like basically you know like parts of the caribbean like era kind of stuff like with all these boats leaving europe and going abroad the amount of species decline that happened during that that period of time was massive like the stella sea cow which was in the bering strait and all that like just massive quantities of wildlife that got wiped out sea turtle hunting because obviously we used to power our electricity through like animal fat like whale blubber and penguin blubber and stuff and penguins used to be far more abundant or I think they were called the great orcs or something so like wildlife just used to be way more abundant everywhere all the time yeah. and now it's just so diminished that it's like we've got just like fragments of a broken ghost left of wildlife and so yeah Unnatural History Unnatural History of the Sea is a great book amazing thank you uh, any last question before we wrap up for, for dinner alright everyone's hungry yeah. big thank you to, to Ellie and uh, everything you do thanks Ellie. guys yeah. bon appetit Wow. What'd you think? Man, it was so good. It's like, uh, I don't know, it's just one of those moments that it's like, it's so cool to be able to share such an important conversation, to do so in a really unique way, a live podcast recording where we're having the conversation, but we're also, you know, engaging with the people that are there and the energy in the room. Um, yeah, I think he's just such an exceptional person too like you were saying before, his, his ability to have care and compassion and knowledge about so many aspects of, you know, caring for the oceans and how to uh, protect and defend and create space for people to get engaged just at like a really grassroots level. Uh, it is so impressive and it just shows like his commitment and his heart and his passion for, for what he's doing and just so appreciative of who he is as a person and grateful for the opportunity to have had that <laughs> incredible conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree. So yes, if uh, if you've made it this far, please do check out Seaspiracy. Yes. It is incredible. It is like, it should be mandatory viewing for all human human beings. Right. Having, you know, being human, if you want to be human, you should be aware of our impact on this on this planet. And this film so beautifully um, and importantly shares, you know, what we're doing to our oceans, to the oceans that we, you know, are occupying. Um, follow his Instagram, mm-hmm. Seaspiracy and Ellie Tabritzi. They're both incredible accounts sharing incredible information. That's right. His website's amazing too. So many takeaway facts. If if there was something in the movie that you were, you know, looking to to have that info or that source on, it's all you know beautifully laid out on his website. So you know, I encourage you all to continue your your education and your own journey and and connecting and being a, a, a steward to you know be a, a good partner to this planet earth that we are co-inhabiting if you guys enjoyed this podcast you know we always appreciate uh if you can share with a friend share with an uncle a cousin a loved one uh write a review wherever you're listening to this google spotify apple 
Uh, it's kind of how we help spread the word and let this podcast show up in, in more and more ways is mm-hmm. through through reviews and shares. So uh, we are, are very grateful for, for any review, share, like, whatever, whatever the social medias that you're using. Yeah. So many these days. I think I'm still on, on the old ones, the MySpace. I don't know. I'll put it, I'll throw this up on my MySpace. Check it out on my MySpace. Yes. yes. (laughs) Who was the guy that was everybody's friend on MySpace? Tom. 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 Yeah. Yeah. You and Tom are still holding MySpace down. Tom's doing well. Yeah. Check in with Tom. We should have him on the bottom. (laughs) I'll send him a greeting card. Anyways. All right. We are grateful. Grateful for you you all. Appreciate you all. We'll see y'all next week. Peace. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. shopify.com work.